Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at the turning tides podcast at gmail.com thanks for listening warning this episode of turning tides contains graphic descriptions of violence language torture sexual assault rape racism suicide and murder following the deadly assault which killed 39 people And before the CS gas had even lifted from Attica's D-yard, Nelson D. Rockefeller was trying to control the narrative. He demanded his Attorney General, Robert Fisher, send Assistant Attorney General Anthony Simonetti to begin investigating immediately. Rockefeller was determined to purport that the uprising at Attica was a revolutionary plot. To that end, he had the Organized Crime Task Force, or OCTF, take the lead. Rockefeller and his people were sure the public would accept their description of events and view Rockefeller in a positive light. For those on the ground who had to deal with the actual cleanup, it was obvious that this was an event which could potentially cause disastrous political and social fallout. Bodies of hostages and prisoners covered the floor of Attica's maintenance building. The first task was to get them autopsied by local morticians. Many of the hostages' bodies ended up with Dr. John Edland, who was the head medical examiner for Monroe County. Hordes of state troopers facilitated the transport of the bodies before trying to get a closer look at the castrations and throat cuttings which they were sure had occurred. With each autopsy, however, the state's fabrications were easily dispelled. Two hostages had neck injuries, but they had only punctured a, quote, tenth of an inch of skin, unquote. Every single hostage was killed by state bullets, save for C.O. William Quinn, who was injured during the riot and later died. This reality infuriated the troopers, who were expecting their stories to be corroborated by the local medical examiners. However, Dr. Edland was not going to simply change the facts as they presented themselves to him. He was just doing his job and reporting the truth. He was a Republican, so he had no political interest in the state's narrative being challenged. Naturally, when the details of the examinations were released, Rockefeller did all he could to label the medical examiner as a, quote, radical left-winger, unquote. Nixon stood by his choice to support Rockefeller, saying, quote, he's got a hell of a lot of guts, unquote. While John Ehrlichman said, quote, four to one kill ratio is going to give convicts in other prisons a second thought, unquote. Meanwhile, the media had to apologize and rescind the many comments they made about the uprising. However, in Attica, the townspeople couldn't believe that the state, which employed so many of them, would kill their own employees. 
Many refused to believe it, and many would remain resentful toward prisoners for demanding change in the first place. Medical examiner Michael Baden was chosen to perform additional autopsies on the hostages. His reports validated Dr. Edlin's initial findings. The one point on which they diverged was the cause of L.D. Barkley's death. Dr. Edlin maintained that Barkley was killed when a round was fired at point-blank range from a rifle, puncturing his chest and then his lungs. Dr. Baden was of the opinion that Barkley was killed when a long-range round quote-unquote tumbled through Barkley. The state obviously latched on to the latter report, absolving themselves of another murder. News about slain prisoners was incredibly scant. In some cases, it took a full week for the next of kin to be informed of their loved one's passing. The funerals for those who died in the uprising began to take place. Thousands marched with the coffin, in New York City and Rochester especially. Protesters came out in droves to mourn the prisoners who had died for no reason. Funeral processions for the hostages occurred at the same time, trailed by an honor guard of state troopers. Anvalone was beyond distraught and had no clue in whom to believe. She desperately penned a letter to William Kunzler, in the hope he would be able to tell her the truth. He responded right away, saying he felt horrible about what had happened to her husband and countless others. He said he was more determined than ever to combat injustice in America's prison system. Throughout the country, men and women began to realize how shaky the state's argument was. They demanded inquiry. The first attempts to see the prisoners of Attica was made by attorneys Schwartz and Hellerstein. They were convinced that COs were beating prisoners and that civil rights were being infringed upon at Attica. Thanks to their pressure, Rockefeller called for Harry D. Goldman to form a committee and look into allegations of impropriety at Attica. Attica's officials did all they could to restrict the movement of these state observers, only allowing four rooms for them to interview the many hundreds of prisoners claiming state violence. The first tours shocked them. Many men still had untreated bullet wounds, and many had fresh bruises. These men, in turn, spoke of new gauntlets and torture during the night. Attica was incredibly unsafe. However, at Goldman's press conference, little was said of this abuse. It was clear to most that his panel was not impartial, and that they served at the governor's whim. As if to show the true reality of the situation... Many prisons across the country began to rebel, and individual prisoners made their protests plain by refusing to eat, shower, or follow instructions. Following the uprising, many prisoners of Attica were transferred out. Attica prisoners were considered dangerous radicals, and they continued to be singled out and abused in their new prisons. Additionally, CO unions across the country were incredibly disgruntled with the lack of training and care given to the men they represented. The union believed COs should be considered as much a part of law enforcement as any other branch of service. In the wake of Attica, many saw that this was clearly not the case. Realizing the true scope of the PR problem he had created for himself... Rockefeller made a concerted effort to get the story straight with all those involved. 
in an absolutely ridiculous move. He had a meeting with Simonetti's team, the New York State Departments of Corrections, and the New York State Police Captain. Considering that the State Police and the Department of Corrections both may have committed crimes during the retaking of Attica, the fact that they were meeting with Simonetti and his people to get their story straight was highly suspect. How can one claim to prosecute justly when they work with the same people accused of said gross injustice? In the months that followed, Attica was placed under a microscope. The Jones Commission was set up by Rockefeller after the mounting public pressure which followed Goldman's obviously falsified report. The Jones Commission was much more critical of the state and open to calling out civil rights abuses. Next was the Pepper Commission. This was a federal body which answered directly to the federal government. This commission attempted to seriously investigate conditions at Attica. However, the whole committee was viewed as pointless after several prisoners were refused the chance to speak their piece about what happened to them. Met with state roadblocks, it was clear to all that a completely independent commission needed to be formed to investigate Attica without bias or state pressures. This independent citizen's inquiry was headed by Robert McKay. He was adamant about finding the truth which had been hidden by the state. This commission began its crusade with a modest budget of $250,000 and a dedicated team of fact-finders. Robert Fisher and Anthony Simonetti did everything they conceivably could to get to the treasure trove of information which the McKay Commission was compiling. At one point, McKay's boss said he was prepared to go to jail rather than hand over a single document to the state's investigation. In the face of this man who was unwilling to cower, Governor Rockefeller folded and enforced the commission's independence once more. Robert McKay then decided that a hearing was needed, one in which prisoners could come forward and air their grievances. The McKay hearing was broadcast via local television networks. They captivated the state citizens. These hearings confronted New York's lies head-on. Especially poignant was the testimony of National Guardsman John W. Cudmore. He said, quote, I think Attica brings to mind several things. The first is the basic inhumanity of man to man, the veneer of civilization. The veneer was penetrated, unquote. The final telling of the McKay hearings and findings can be located in the official report of the State of New York Special Commission on Attica. Despite being a mouthful, it was an astonishing piece of literature which succinctly laid out the root cause of the uprising, the events during the riot, and its violent aftermath. Anthony Simonetti was undeterred by the release of the McKay report. In fact, he was privy to much more information than that which was made accessible to McKay. Additionally, he had interns break the report down line by line. He had been working on this case since September 13, 1971, and it showed. Simonetti's office was rife with resources. He had means far beyond anything an independent commission or defense team could ever hope to have at their disposal. He worked hand-in-hand with the state police's investigation unit, headed by Captain Henry Williams. 
Williams was at Attica the day of the retaking, and very likely sanctioned many crimes. He made a point to disregard any evidence found which would implicate the state. He refused to let chalk outlines be made, and he did not deem it necessary to pick up any casings from the many rounds fired by his officers. The state saw no problem aligning themselves with Williams, nor Williams with the state. The state's prosecution team's main concern was finding C.O. William Quinn's killer or killers. They made it clear prisoner crimes were at the forefront of their mind. On top of Quinn's death, there were several other instances of crime and murder in D-Yard. In the first hours, there were numerous reports of assault and prison rape. When leadership positions were doled out, these instances ceased to occur. However, with the lengthening of the state siege, suspicion and turmoil festered. In the worst case, two prisoners were charged with treason simply for talking with news teams about the uprising. Come the morning of the retaking, these two men, Kenneth Hess and Barry Schwartz, were found murdered, their throats cut and their bodies mangled beyond recognition. A third prisoner, Mickey Privetera, was also found killed after raving incoherently in D-Yard and frightening the men. The state needed witnesses to corroborate their stories. So the BCI, the Bureau of Criminal Investigation, went to work immediately. Flip Crowley was still suffering from several gunshot wounds when the BCI arrived in its hospital room. When Flip was unable to provide the necessary information to investigators, he said they, quote, proceeded to beat me, and they beat me for at least half an hour. During the course of the beatings, I was made to crawl around on the floor and shout white power and kiss their feet. This went on for two days, unquote. When the stick did not suffice, the carrot was dangled over the heads of the traumatized men. Need more money in your commissary account? Just claim you saw John Hill at this location. Need a favorable parole hearing? Simply tell us that Jomo was seen covered in blood. It was incredibly effective, and it allowed the BCI to quote-unquote collect any information they wanted. The fact that this information was likely false seemed to matter very little to them. Regardless, the state had its evidence. After a 13-month-long investigation, they handed down over 1,200 criminal charges against only 62 prisoners. In their first attempt to speed the trials along to conviction, Warsaw, New York was announced as the location. This was a pro-prison guard town. Many of the citizens there had family or friends who worked in Attica, and several prospective jurors knew former hostages personally. This was not going to be an impartial jury of the prisoners' peers. The National Lawyers Guild wasted no time in coming to the defense of the accused. They filed injunctions to have the location of the trials moved. As these court cases began to gear up, the FBI wished to involve itself once more with Attica. Vice President Spiro Agnew asked the FBI to collect any information it could on the, quote, radicals, unquote, who rose up at Attica. The defense team consisted almost entirely of members of the National Lawyers Guild, 
Half their staff was at Attica, the other half were at Wounded Knee, where a similar miscarriage of justice was taking place. By September 21, 1973, in order to better and more cohesively defend the many men prosecuted by the state, the Attica Brothers Defense League, or ABLD, was born. The political message of Attica needed help to be spread. Help arrived from community organizers like Fight and Build, whose headquarters were located close by in Rochester. The main resource which the ABLD needed in order to combat the state was money. However, the judge presiding, Carmen Ball, made the decision to withhold defense funds until after the trials had been decided. This was a strange move, considering the state's prosecution was given over $4 million in taxpayer money during the same time. ABLD was now forced to become a fundraising entity, as well as a legal defense fund. The fact that it had to do both, and did both effectively, was a testament to the people who were affiliated with this group. The defense had its own tricks to stall the state. They filed motions and injunctions for everything under the sun. These effectively swamped Simonetti's office. To quote Heather Ann Thompson, the stack of papers was so large that Simonetti's office needed a dolly to wheel the papers before the court, unquote. Additionally, they succeeded in getting the location changed. The trials would now take place in Buffalo, a much more diverse city than Warsaw, New York. They also succeeded in getting many of their motions of discovery accepted. This cornucopia of state information was a serious boon in crafting a meaningful defense for their clients. Working hand-in-hand -hand with the ABLD were former prisoners of Attica. Big Black and others spent countless hours campaigning for the rights of former Attica prisoners, and they would not stop until their story was told. Even with all this early posturing, it was still an uphill battle. Following Watergate, the new president, Gerald Ford, chose none other than Nelson D. Rockefeller as his vice president. It was his crowning achievement. To progressives, he was the butcher of Attica. To conservatives, he was the shining example of what tough-on-crime policymaking can achieve. The ABLD, although composed of people who wanted to see the accused walk free, was also incredibly divided on how it should go about doing that. Back in the mix was William Kunstler. He felt a personal responsibility to work with the ABLD. He also believed he must prosecute the state in order to defend his clients. Other less radical lawyers supported a legalistic approach. Prove your defendant innocent with facts, not rhetoric. This caused an incredible amount of tension amongst the various opinionated lawyers. Additionally, romantic tension was flaring as several relationships developed between the lawyers and their clients. This tension led to several different defense teams being founded. However, they all worked willingly with the ABLD to share information. It was a Herculean task, which was accomplished with incredible vigor. One way they did this was through an ingenious jury selection process. A recent scientific study was applied to jury selection at trial. Following the defendant's acquittal, the practice started to seriously gain traction with younger, more progressive lawyers. 
This scientifically-based algorithm helped them to create spreadsheets based on how people felt toward race, the Attica riots, etc. In no time at all, ABLD coordinators organized community-wide outreach across Erie County. They managed to keep running costs low while canvassing tens of thousands of prospective jurors. Another way the ABLD pinned down the prosecution and discovered their illegal methods of obtaining information was through Wade hearings. A Wade hearing is a pretrial maneuver which is meant to determine if a witness has been tainted. ABLD lawyers used these hearings to prove repeatedly that the information which the state had put forward as fact was acquired under duress. After collectively agreeing not to accept a plea deal, the Attica accused were ready for their first day in court. Before that happened, a man named Richard Bellello copped to a plea deal. He had mafia connections and was already serving a life sentence, so rather than protest his innocence, he simply pleaded guilty. He claimed to have been in Keeplock the entire time the uprising took place and therefore could not have kidnapped or coerced anyone. Regardless, it was viewed as a victory by the state. Next, the state planned on taking the rape of James Schleek to trial. They accused Willie Smith of perpetrating the crime during the first hours of the uprising. Indeed, James and his brother John were both raped by multiple offenders, but they had no clue who had done it. In choosing this case as the first to go to trial, the state attempted to paint a picture of black prisoners assaulting defenseless white prisoners. It became clear right away that the state had no evidence which they could pin on Willie Smith. They had no physical evidence, no witness testimony, and no corroborating statements. The judge was not pleased that the court, the taxpayers, and the accused had all had their time wasted. He said, quote, The evidence was too flimsy to warrant a jury's consideration, unquote, and dismissed the case. John Schleek made a desperate plea to the court, quote, I want to know if anything is ever going to be done about this stuff going on in prison. There's a whole lot more kids it's happened to, unquote. Thankfully, the case was dismissed because the ABLD would need all of its resources for the next one. Simonetti's office would try the two prisoners accused of murdering a CO, William Quinn, next. The two men charged were John Hill and Charles Pernasalis, both prisoners at Attica. John Hill had found himself in Attica after being transferred from juvenile detention when he had turned 19. He was part Italian and part Mohawk. He was due to be up for parole when the uprising took place. Charles was in a similar boat. He was part Catauba. He had found himself in Attica for not informing his parole officer about an out-of-state trip. Both supposedly attacked CO William Quinn just outside of Attica's Times Square. Both vehemently denied attacking anyone. Defending Hill would be the husband and wife team, William Kunzler and Margie Ratner. Defending Charles would be the former Attorney General for the United States, Ramsey Clark, alongside Herman Schwartz and Joe Heath. Prosecuting for the state would be Louis Idala, the mustachioed showman of the courtroom. 
As Wade hearings began for both Hill and Charles, Buffalo became a powder keg for young activists, state police, and celebrity rabble-rousers. Their presence brought an increasing tension to the trial. During jury selection, a prospective juror complained that he was called about his views, and the scientific jury selection process was put on hold. Many on the defense team believed this call was made by the prosecution, who had likely been impersonating them. The trial officially began on February 24th. Right away, Kunstler started a political defense, claiming the state, through negligence, had killed William Quinn. Schwartz was against this from the beginning and felt it would make little headway with an, quote, upstate jury, unquote. Kunstler then took it a step further and demanded that Nelson Rockefeller be subpoenaed to give his testimony on what led to the Attica uprising. This was refused, and Kunstler finally asked that the accused, as well as the defense witnesses, be given protection to and from the trial. Again, this was refused. After the judge refused all the defense's requests, including allegations of wiretapping on the prosecution's part, the state began its case. They called their witnesses who described in gruesome detail the way in which William Quinn died. Quinn had suffered an incredible amount, so Idala honed in on the emotional argument to win his case. However, once cross-examination began, it was clear that many state witnesses had been forced into altering their statements. CO Royal Morgan claimed he saw Hill attack Quinn, but Morgan also claims to have been hit hard himself, not to mention the many times over the investigation that he changed his story. Kunstler then exposed CO Gordon Kelsey in a similar way. Next, the defense called forth its witnesses, who detailed an entirely different story than the state's. Now it was Clark's turn. In a quiet, barely audible voice, he masterfully took down each story the state presented against Charles. By the end of the cross-examination, both lawyers were calling for charges to be dropped. These calls were refused. The judge gave no explanation for this. Next came closing remarks. Clark very quickly summed up the defense, but Kunstler took seven hours. In a frustrated voice, he said to the jury, quote, you are sitting in a moment of history, unquote. Finally, the state summarized its argument. At this point, Idala relied exclusively on the emotional, pointing at John Hill and yelling that this man, quote, literally tore away Quinn's human brain, unquote. The jury returned after hours of deliberating. Both men were found guilty of assault and murder. This would have probably been the verdict if any two prisoners of Attica were standing trial. A CO had died, and someone needed to be punished. There needed to be closure, regardless of the fact that there was no conclusive evidence. Kunzer was furious and began a shouting match with the judge. When sentencing came, Hill declared that the real murderers were in Vietnam, and if the, quote, racist jury, unquote, truly wanted justice, it would seek to atone for the 14 million natives murdered by America in the 19th century. Hill was given 20 years to life. 
Charles had the murder charge dropped after a desperate final plea from Clark and was given three years of an intermediate sentence. The next case on the docket would be that of Bernard Strobel, a.k.a. Shango. Shango was a head member of the Attica Uprising security detail and was singled out by guards for abuse because of it. He was accused of brutally murdering prisoner Barry Schwartz. Shango had had anything but an easy life. Following a shootout with police in which he claims he acted in self-defense, he was on the run. He would shoot another man in a pool hall in the Bronx before the law finally caught up with him. While in prison, Shango converted to the Islamic faith and vowed to change his life for the better. He would be shot three times during the retaking. One bullet came perilously close to making Shango a paraplegic. It was after the retaking when his true torture began. He had urine and spit dumped on him and was burned with cigarette butts. Finally, a prison guard came in with a revolver leveled at him. The guard said Shango was going to die tonight unless he would, quote, beg like a black, unquote. The state would rely overwhelmingly on witness testimony to prove that Shango had killed Barry Schwartz. Several prisoners had pointed to him directly for the crime. Agreeing to defend Shango's innocence was civil rights lawyer Ernie Goodman. One of his first tasks was to manage Shango's public image with the help of the ABLD. Shango's mother, a Baptist minister affectionately known to all as Ma Strobel, took the lead on this. As Wade hearings began, it became immediately clear that the state had another shaky case at best. Witnesses testified to being interrogated for up to eight hours a day and being forced to pick Shango out of a lineup. Even worse, many of the prisoners' original testimony indicated that it was quite possibly prisoner Thomas Hicks who was the killer. The state clearly couldn't charge a man they had already killed with murder. In spite of all this, Judge Matina allowed the trial to continue. Scientifically-based jury selection was allowed to resume as well. The defense finally believed they had settled on an acceptable jury for the case. Right before the trial was about to begin, a massive bombshell exploded in the state's face. Mary Jo Cook, a volunteer legal aid for the ABLD, confided in a co-worker that she was actually an undercover operative working for the FBI. She was convinced to go public and reveal her objective. The FBI sent her to secretly look into the organization Vietnam Veterans Against the War, which had political ties to the ABLD. However, throughout her time volunteering, she began to feel enormous guilt and pity for the same people on whom she was gathering evidence. She admitted to giving alleged FBI agents information regarding defense strategy, but she found herself increasingly at odds with her employers. When asked to come before the court, she brought countless documents as evidence, but many more had been burned in a very suspicious fire. In the end, the subtle nature of her work, compounded with her lack of documentation, led the judge to conclude that, quote, there was no evidence of government interference, unquote. The trial was still on, and the prosecution began its case without a hitch. 
Witness Jimmy Ross describes in extensive detail seeing Shango, quote, with a pirate sword, unquote, standing over Barry Schwartz while cutting Barry's throat. This, if true, was damning testimony. However, once Ernie Goodman began his cross, the state's argument crumbled before their eyes. Goodman dismantled the credibility of every single state witness. He showed that Jimmy Ross was cajoled and manipulated into reciting the state's version of events. Goodman then put forward the Thomas Hicks theory to further sow doubt in the jurors' minds. When it was the defense's turn to call witnesses, they pulled no punches. The highlight of the trial came when Dr. Edland, Monroe County coroner, came forward to deliver his testimony. Dr. Edlund maintained that all the evidence pointed to Schwartz dying on Sunday, a full day after Shango supposedly cut his throat with a pirate sword. The prosecution was in a complete uproar. They said they had plenty of medical examiners who would disagree with his assertion. Dr. Edlund had finally lost his patience. He spoke of being ridiculed and having his integrity questioned for years by state and local officials. He was incensed that he had been treated in such a way simply for trying to assert the truth. He left the stunned courtroom saying he'd done, quote, the best he could, unquote. After several more defense witnesses shot down the state's story further, it was time for deliberations, but not before the judge removed the kidnapping charge against Shango. This was a crucial move for all future trials as no Attica defendant would go on to be charged with kidnapping after this trial. The jury took hours mulling over the case notes. When they concluded, the verdict was read aloud. Shango was found not guilty of murder. There was a scene of jubilation in the courtroom. Mastrobel fainted while Shango attempted to see to his mother. Outside, the streets were swarmed with young people. They chanted, Attica means, while the prisoners still in lockup answered, fight back. The score was settled, but this was by no means the end. Jomo would now be brought up on the charge of killing prisoner Kenneth Hess. Jomo was the son of a North Carolina sharecropper. He first found trouble with the police when he and a friend were arrested for unknowingly bringing moonshine across a state border. Once out of jail for this first offense, he became bitter. He moved north to the Bronx. He changed his name, but he got into trouble again after robbing an auto parts shop. He would end up at Sing Sing, where he underwent a profound transformation. He discovered the Islamic faith and began to devour any book he could acquire. Next, he was involved with Auburn's uprising and was named one of the Auburn Six who ended up behind Attica's walls. During Attica's retaking, he would be shot at least six times all over his body. Shotgun pellets had ripped open his left arm. Another bullet was lodged in his neck. And the most severe was a bullet that collapsed his left lung. That night, he sat in, quote, four to five inches of standing water without sufficient warm clothes, real food, or even a mattress, unquote. It's a miracle Jomo's wounds were not infected in the days he was not allowed to go to the hospital. Once inside the hospital, COs and state troopers would play Russian roulette with him. And once out of hospital, he was thrown back into solitary. Vinnie Doyle, Jomo's lawyer, quickly went about defending his client from obviously trumped-up charges. 
he successfully filed a Clayton motion, which is used to determine if a prisoner had been singled out by the state. One thing the state prosecution was not ready for was a sympathetic judge. Judge Ann T. Mickle was horrified upon hearing about Jomo's ordeal. Upon their attempts at railroading an innocent man failing badly, the state offered Jomo an incredibly good plea deal. After some debate, Jomo agreed to the deal. He would plead guilty to coercion, a Class D felony. Most importantly for Jomo, he accepted an Alford deal, a special amendment which made it clear that he was still protesting his innocence. Things were going terribly for the state. Throughout the three trials they held, one thing remained clear. Their evidence was shoddy at best and illegally acquired at worst. They had lost one trial and were forced to give a limp plea deal for another. Their brand of justice seemed to be failing in front of impartial jurors. This was only the beginning of the state's woes. One of their own would become a whistleblower and attempt to bring light to the extent of the state's massive cover-up. Malcolm Bell was a former soldier who had been deployed to West Germany for a number of years. After his honorable discharge, he decided to try his hand at law. He deeply desired to make a difference and to do the right thing. He found himself in banking law, but this was not the place he wanted to be. After seeing an ad in the local paper seeking prosecutors, he threw his hat in the ring. To his surprise, he was invited onto the state's legal team. He believed, above all else, in justice. He also believed that no one was above the law. In all this time, not a single state trooper or CO had had charges brought against them. Considering state troopers were responsible for a vast majority of the violence which occurred during the retaking, Bell considered this strange. Surely the state would attempt to indict officers who went above the law, right? However, when he delved deeper into the evidence, Bell was shocked. The ways in which the state and prison officials had covered up their many crimes was extensive and insidious. What horrified Bell the most was the death of the hostages. Many hostages did not die on the catwalk. The majority of them died while in the hostage circle of D-Yard. This happened after an officer ran in firing on the circle. In response, troopers on the catwalk also began unloading their weapons. In a matter of minutes, thousands of pellets were strewn all over the hostage circle. It was a miracle any of them had escaped with their lives. Upon looking at the deaths of the prisoners, the evidence of unnecessary violence committed by the state was insurmountable. Sam Melville was killed when troopers claimed he was carrying a, quote, basket of Molotov cocktails, unquote. Upon investigation, no such basket was found. What was worse, Melville's wounds were treatable. It seemed he was callously allowed to bleed to death. James Robinson was felled by a 270 bullet in the initial barrage of gunfire on the catwalks. He was barely clinging to life when a trooper with a shotgun came across his body and fired a single round into the man's neck, killing him instantly. In the documents which detailed the retaking, there was a photo of Robinson, dead on the ground, with nothing in his hands. Another photo, presumably taken moments later, shows Robinson, now clutching, a small sword.
Bell set about the monumental task of bringing charges against the officers he believed acted with no provocation. In each case he attempted to bring before the grand jury, he was denied the opportunity to seek justice. The jury felt it was not even worth discussing the possibility that the state police force had in any way overreached. As each case was refused, more and more state officials testified in order to obtain immunity. These same people could have been charged with reckless endangerment and conspiracy. Instead, their necks were saved by the same investigators who were supposedly looking into the wrongdoing. Bell understood that prosecutors and police were natural allies, but he just couldn't understand what that had to do with breaking the law with such little regard for human life. After countless hours of work and frustration, Malcolm Bell was finally fed up. He was already being ostracized by his colleagues, and he was increasingly at odds with Simonetti, who insisted on bringing prisoners to trial with zero evidence to support his claims. Bell prepared a massive report, which he immediately sent to the new governor. After waiting for weeks for a response and hearing nothing back, Bell went to the New York Times as a last resort. He handed his damning report to Tom Wicker. When it was released to the public, the floodgates were opened. Officials ordered up another commission to be sent in to investigate Attica and the alleged cover-up. It was headed by a personal friend of Nelson Rockefeller, Bernard S. Meyer. After years of investigating themselves, the state police and corrections apparatus would be investigated by someone else for a change. By October 27, 1975, the three-volume Meyer Report was finally completed. Upon the governor's request, its second and third volumes were sealed to the public. In spite of this, the first volume of the Meyer Report was explosive. However, it was a highly controversial document, because it did not formally accuse New York state officials of any wrongdoing or cover-up. For example, the report determined that Anthony Simonetti handing out immunity to New York State's top brass was a, quote, lack of good judgment, unquote. Following its public release, the population was deeply divided on the Attica investigation. Some wanted a new investigation to be headed by someone else other than Simonetti. Others wanted the investigation to stop outright and for a general amnesty to be called for all who were involved. The choice was made to remove Simonetti, but not before his office brought charges against an officer for the first time in four years. Alfred J. Scotty was chosen to replace Simonetti. His first act was to ask that the impending charges against Trooper Wildridge be dropped. It was more of the same from the prosecution. For Governor Hugh Carey, this was a source of continual upheaval for his office. Come New Year's Day, 1976, the state had had enough of this fight. Every indictment was expunged from the record. There would be no more trials, and those still in jail were given their freedom. The prison guard and police unions were outraged. They called it a, quote, slap in the face, unquote. Former Attica prisoners were happy that the trials were over. However, John Hill's struggle was not yet finished. He was still viewed as C.O. Quinn's killer and he would be denied parole. One of his most vocal supporters was Malcolm Bell, who campaigned endlessly for his right to freedom. It was now the state's turn to be taken to court. 
seeking damages for the death, torture, and humiliation they suffered, the survivors of Attica would see their story told. Lawyer Elizabeth Fink would help them seek justice. She had been on the case for years and grew to become friends with Big Black, who was still doing all he could to have his story heard. He, as well as countless others, would try to assert the truth over the extraordinary amount of state money they had working against them. Not until 1989 did a judge rule in favor of former prisoners, finally claiming that the state could be held accountable for the massacre of September 13, 1971. It was now time for a class action lawsuit to be filed against the state of New York. Nelson Rockefeller, Russell Oswald, Vincent Mancusi, John Monaghan, and Carl Feel. This trial would take place in Buffalo, New York. Nelson Rockefeller would go on to be removed from the lawsuit. The judge who would clumsily rule over this trial was John T. Elfvin. Elfin and Fink would fight for years about whether the Attica survivors' lawsuit could be considered class action. During this back and forth, news was released about an affair going on between Judge Elfin and the court reporter. After this, it was required that all proceedings for the case be recorded. In spite of this scandal, the judge was allowed to stay on, and the trial began in earnest. Fink would attempt to show the jury that the state had engaged in torture and wanton destruction of human life on an unjustifiable level. Her witnesses provided heart-wrenching testimony in which they detailed what they saw on the day of the retaking. A good portion of these witnesses were National Guardsmen who were horrified at what they had experienced. The state stooped to a new low with these witnesses, questioning their bravery. In one of the most telling exchanges, State Attorney John Stenger asked, quote, But you've never seen combat, right? Unquote. Taken aback, the National Guardsman retorted, quote, I beg your pardon? Unquote. At this, the lawyer asked again, quote, Have you ever seen combat? Unquote. After a moment's deliberation, the Guardsman answered, quote, I think I saw combat that day, sir. Unquote. By January of 1992, deliberations would finally begin. But Judge Elfin had left the jury with a completely nonsensical set of instructions. Jurors had to decide, one, the standard of wantonness. Two, if the yard was riotous, not riotous, or somewhere in between. And three, apply either sadistic, malicious, or indifferent standards to those accused of reckless endangerment. I can't be the only one who read these instructions and thought, what the hell is he talking about? Additionally, now is the time of year in which Judge Elfin vacationed to Barbados. It seemed to not matter to him that the jury may need further instructions, nor that the standing of the state which he served was on the line. When asked what would happen if the jury had questions, he said they'd have to, quote, wait until I get back, unquote. After his boss, Michael Teleska, had a screaming match with him over the phone, Judge Elfin returned, incredibly perturbed that his vacation was put on pause. In the end, the jury agreed that the many Attica defendants' civil rights had been violated. However, thanks to Judge Elfin's ludicrous instructions, 
only Carl Feel, assistant deputy supervisor for Attica, was found criminally negligent. It was not all that the defense wanted, but the fact that anyone at all was held accountable meant that the Attica survivors were entitled to a cash settlement. Following this ruling, Judge Elfin did all he could to stall Big Black's impending damages trial. He even threatened Fink, claiming he would make her seek damages in 1,200 separate court cases. Fink masterfully argued her position throughout the state's continued attempts to stonewall her. Judge Elfin was having a great time playing this never-ending game of chicken with the Attica survivor's lawyer. He considered it, quote, sparring, unquote. These games were played all the way up until 1997, when Big Black finally got his day in court. Liz Fink would not sugarcoat anything during this trial. It was, quote, about torture that was physical, was race-based, and was psychological, unquote. The state claimed the jury would, quote, hear very little medical proof of what actually happened, injuries actually suffered by Mr. Smith, unquote. This line of logic failed the state's lawyers right away, especially once Big Black got up to speak his piece. He recounted that day while holding back tears. He remembered that he kept hearing his name shouted by COs because they believed he had castrated William Quinn. He was forced to sit on a weight bench and was given a football to balance on his chest. The officers standing around him promised to murder him if he let the ball drop. As they abused him verbally, racially, and psychologically, they began dumping lit cigarette butts and cigar ash onto the naked man. In the end, the football balancing on his chest was his one escape from the torture. If he kept the ball up, he could live another minute. After his gauntlet trial, in which he faced, quote, 40 to 50 officers, unquote, he was threatened with castration. Even after Judge Elfin attempted to shape the jury's opinion again by preventing critical medical testimony from being shared, the jury still awarded Big Black over $4 million. The judge was stunned. The state of New York simply couldn't afford to dole out that kind of money to the dozens who were murdered and tortured. Next was former prisoner David Brosig, whose trial outcome would shape the amount of money given to the least traumatized Attica survivors. His tale was just as harrowing. He spoke of the same beatings, racism, and lack of care which Big Black had described. Brosig was awarded the much smaller sum of $75,000. This was still an astronomical amount for the state, as hundreds of former prisoners now had precedent to collect this same amount. However, during his appeal, Carl Feel managed to get the second court to accept that Judge Elfin had skewed the initial trial. They considered this reason enough to deem him not criminally negligent. The $4,075,000 awarded to Big Black and Brosig, respectively, was now off the table. The Attica survivors were back at square one. It was as if the past decade of rolling in the mud with Judge Elfin was for nothing. Judge Teleska was thankfully chosen to replace Judge Elfin. His main priority was to reach a settlement with the state. Thirty years of legal back and forth had brought them no closer to reaching a deal. 
At first, New York said $50,000 was all Attica's survivors needed. This was an absurdly low number. Judge Teleska proved to be a man of principle, and he argued for more and more until he reached the number $12 million. This was, to be sure, nowhere near the amount which had been awarded in the previous trial, but it was the closest Attica survivors could get to real justice. What was more, Judge Teleska held closed-door meetings with any and all prisoners able to make the trip to his office. There would be no need to show evidence or proof. He simply wanted the stories of the men on record. It was the first time many of them would be sharing their story. One young man spoke of being an incredibly gifted basketball player with the potential for a professional future. COs knew this, so during the retaking, they tied guns to the top of his feet and dragged him up the stairs. He was refused medical attention, which caused his feet to heal improperly, leaving him with an unathletic shuffle, which was now his permanent gait. As the news of this settlement swept the nation, there was another group of people who were totally ignored by the state. The former hostages and their families reacted angrily when they discovered that the prisoners would be getting a payout. Many of the townspeople still blame them for the violence that happened nearly 30 years ago at this point. One woman, who still held deep resentment toward the prisoners, was Deanne Quinn Miller. Her father had been the first fatality during the Attica Uprising. She grew up with intense stomach problems and migraines, which rendered her incapacitated for hours at a time. One day, a local radio station held an impromptu meeting at a diner for the surviving families of hostages. Nearly the entire town showed up. Deanne was particularly struck by the words of former CO and hostage Mike Smith. He said he didn't begrudge the prisoners for finally getting what was owed to them. He also said that the hostages were treated just as bad by the state. This was a revelation for Deanne. As she referred to it, Attica was a, quote, boys club, unquote, of people who supported the state. After this initial meeting, the townspeople seemed more willing to discuss their trauma, and through it, they banded together to seek a redress of their grievances. Following the Attica retaking, many widows were promised that they would, quote, be taken care of, unquote, by the state. This was seen as the state acting altruistically and supporting those who had died. In reality, it was a cruelly calculated move which would allow the state to not face legal indictment. In New York State, when one receives money following a workplace accident, it is referred to as, quote, electing a remedy, unquote. This grants the state immunity from any future lawsuits filed by the recipient of the check. Widows who were desperate and grateful that any help was being sent at all accepted the check without fully understanding the legal repercussions. This was also true of those who accepted hospital assistance from the state. This fact was uncovered only when the families formed themselves into the FVOA, or the Forgotten Victims of Attica in order to sue the state. The only Attica widow who was able to sue turned out to be Linda Jones, whose husband was killed by police. She brought the check to a lawyer friend, William Cunningham, and he quickly sussed out the state's true intentions. It was his belief that Linda should sue the state for damages. 
She did, and she pressed her case until she was granted over $550,000. The other Attica members were in no such position. The FVOA refused to be deterred, and they began a massive campaign for closure. They were supported by the union heads of the correctional department nationwide, as well as the police unions of New York and Los Angeles. Finally, a hearing was scheduled to be headed by the Department of Correctional Services Commissioner Glenn Gord. Once the hostages' family took the stand, they spoke about their husbands, who could not be in large crowds, nor get a good night's rest. Then there were the stories of what families had to endure, the violence and anger, the seemingly random mood swings and excessive drinking. C.O. Valone's daughter, Mary Ann, said, quote, I hated the hostages that lived. I hated the civil rights movement. I hated blacks. I hated God. I hated corrections officers. I hated my mother. And then I hated my father for going to work. I forgave the prisoners first. They were victims too. But it took me a long time to forgive God. Unquote. Then her thoughts turned to her late brother. Quote, my brother was in pain. My brother killed himself, hung himself off the deck of his $125,000 house when he was 33 years old, unquote. As these hearings took place, an unlikely friendship developed between Big Black and Deanne Quinn Miller. They found common ground in their trauma and spent hours on the phone with one another. Far from being bitter, Big Black 100% supported the fight of the hostages' families. Some conversations were deeply emotional. Others were simply to catch up. By 2003, Big Black was fighting a losing war to cancer. Deanne mentions how weak he sounded on their phone calls during this time. By 2004, he would lose his fight. Malcolm Bell was constantly arguing on the family side. He, maybe more than anyone else, understood how awfully everyone at Attica was treated. It was time that this horrible chapter was finished for good. In late September 2003, Commissioner Gord asked if $8 million was an agreeable amount. The FBOA considered this number insulting and rejected it outright. Sent in to finish negotiations once and for all was Judge Teleska. He had already settled the prisoners' cases. Now he did everything in his power to settle the cases of the hostages. After rejecting $10.5 million, Deanne Quinn Miller became very sick and was taken to the hospital. It wasn't until January 14, 2005, that the FVOA agreed on a payout of $12 million. This was the same number awarded to the ABLD, but since it was shared between fewer people, the payout was much larger. In the end, Mike Smith wrapped up the whole ugly process by saying, quote, I don't know if this is justice, but this is as close as we're going to get, unquote. In the 50 years since the uprising and retaking of Attica, America's prison system has remained an issue. As of today, there are nearly 2 million people incarcerated in America's penitentiaries. A large part of them, nearly 40%, are black Americans. Considering that black people only make up about 13% of America's population, this ratio of incarceration is staggering. Following Attica, many reforms were promised, and some were made, but these reforms have all been walked back slowly but surely in the face of an ever-expanding prison population.
both political parties are to blame. They both have entities who conduct themselves unethically for the sake of continuing to acquire cheap labor. The main lesson we can take away from Attica is that, to this country, black and indigenous life is not seen as life worth protecting or nurturing. One has to only turn on the television any given week to see how the toxic and violent attitudes and actions exposed at Attica continue to pollute our government and our justice systems today. The Attica victim settlements confirm this fact tenfold. Countless times throughout this country's history, it has chosen violence and oppression especially when faced with demands for meaningful reform and reparations for harm done by the state. Attica only amplified to the public what had already been common practice for many years. So how do we reform this system to make it work for all of us? Perhaps the first thing to do is to admit that there is a problem. We cannot progress or find a solution without doing that at the very least. If we refuse to acknowledge the sins of our past, we will only repeat them and continue a cycle of pain. Perhaps one of the first things New York State could do is to admit its role in Attica. To this day, New York has failed to apologize to the hostages and prisoners that they butchered. Considering that the current governor, Democrat Kathy Hochul, is supposed to be a champion of equal rights, it seems it should be an easy task to simply apologize for what transpired. As of May 31st, she passed a law which, quote, establishes a claim of unlawful interference with protected rights. The law states, quote, Claims arise when a person demonstrates that they exercised or attempted to exercise or facilitated or attempted to facilitate the exercise of a right protected under the Constitution of the State of New York. Unquote. So the question remains, why hasn't a formal apology been made? It is the very least that the State of New York could do. In the next series of Turning Tides, we will be covering the life of the Asiatic conqueror, Amir Timur, or Tamerlane. To his native Uzbekistan, he is a founding father. To Georgians, he is known as the evil. He murdered millions, built great temples, and led his armies to resounding victories across the Middle East and Central Asia. Tune in on April 18th to hear the first episode in this two-part series, From Rustler to Conqueror. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to rate and review Turning Tides on whatever platform you use to listen and share the show on social media. It really helps us to bring the show to more listeners. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'd also like to say thank you to Movo Photo. 
We use their sound equipment for this podcast, as well as all of our other projects at Antics Entertainment. They make great equipment at great prices, and we really appreciate that they make content creating so accessible for indie creators like us. Check them out on social media at Movo Photo, M-O-V-O-P-H-O-T-O. Thank you again.